Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Chris Hammer was a journalist for more than 30 years, splitting his career between federal politics and international affairs, reporting for SBS, The Age and The Bulletin, amongst others. In 2017, that part of his life ended just as another had begun unfolding. In August 2018, this Canberra-based author's debut novel, Scrublands, hit the shelves and rocketed up the bestseller lists, an instant hit in a genre that has now been dubbed Antipodean Noir. Set in an isolated riverina country town ravaged by drought, Scrublands grips readers from its opening pages when a young priest opens fire on a seemingly peaceful gathering of his congregation, killing five of them before being shot and killed himself by local police. A year on from this event, we meet journalist Martin Skarsden, a man haunted by his experiences of reporting from the Gaza Strip. He's sent to write a story on the effect of the tragedy on the town. But what he finds is a dying town harbouring shocking secrets and divided by their opinion of the killer priest. What follows is a page-turning journey as Martin seeks to uncover the reason why the town priest turned on his congregation and in the process face his own demons. Earlier this year, Chris's follow-up novel Silver was published. In Silver, we are reacquainted with Martin Skarsden and his new girlfriend Mandalay Blonde. Silver picks up where Scrublands left off. Only this time we are transported from the dust-filled plains of the despairing Riverina to a fictional town on the New South Wales far north coast. And Martin once more finds himself in the eye of the storm when Mandy is accused of murdering Martin's high school pal. It gives me a great thrill to welcome Chris to the podcast today. Hi there, Claudine. Nice to be with you. Thank you very much for joining me. Now, that was quite a long introduction. However, in preparing for this interview today, I found that it was quite nearly impossible to talk about your new book, Silva, without referencing in part the phenomenal success of your debut fiction novel, Scrublands. Yep, look, that's fine. Um, The interesting thing, though, I found in the last few months, so Silva was published just right at the start of October. I've met several people who have read Silva as a standalone without reading Scrublands first. Okay. Uh, And now that was my intention that, that you'd be able to do that. Obviously, I know the books intimately. Um, but the people who have read it, Silver as a standalone, have really enjoyed it too. So it's interesting that, that you tie them so closely together. Um, whether I mean, many of those people have then said, oh, now I've got to go and read Scrublands. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's and that's typical of crime series too, with the same protagonist, that um, the books can be read out of order. And I think part of the reason for that is with a crime book, you've got to resolve the crime within the one book. You can't have it sort of lagging over several books. So, But it's interesting that um, I, in my own mind, I'm a bit like you. Know, I kind of think of them more of as, as a package. Indeed. Such incredible success with Scrublands. Congratulations. I mean, not only did it win a UK Dugger Award earlier this year, but I understand that it's been picked up in the US and in the UK, but also that it's been optioned for a television adaptation. Yeah, so this was <laughs> this was really living the dream. I... <laughs> I'd published, I'd written and published two non-fiction books a couple of years ago with Melbourne University Press, The River and the Coast. They're kind of like travel writing. The River was very well received and, and you know, won a prize and was shortlisted for others, but sold hardly anything. So that was very much my expectation when I wrote Scrublands. I thought it will probably get published, 
but that's about as far as I thought. I didn't even, you know, consider that it might become a bestseller. I guess I had that kind of dream. Mm. But even before it was published here, it was sold into the US, uh, into the UK, and into several foreign translations, even before it was published here. And at the same time, it was optioned for television here as well. So it ha- all that happened in a big rush over the space of a month or two, um, just before and just as Scrublands was coming out. I mean, that's incredible. How does that make you feel? I kind of gobsmacked, like <laughs> incredulous. I mean, I, I couldn't quite believe it was happening, to be honest. I really had no concept that that even could happen. Um, you, you know, the average income for a published author in Australia, the published authors, is about $12,000 a year. Um, and that was kind of my experience with my two non-fiction books. So to, to have a, a kind of a success like this was, I mean, clearly it does happen. And I'm not the only one person it's happened to. It was just that in my ignorance, I didn't realise it could happen. So, yeah, it made me, I was just walking around with my feet off the ground for like months on end. I bet. I bet it did. I mean, it really is an amazing success story. Well, the other thing to be said about that is um, the publisher, Alan and Amun, put a huge amount of effort into making sure the book got out there before it was published to make sure that booksellers were aware of it you know, put a lot of effort into trying to get them to read it. Um, God knows how many books are published in Australia every year. You know, probably 20,000, 50,000, I don't know. So mm. just to get booksellers to read a book is a, is a major effort because mm. they've only got so much time. So that's where I was really fortunate. I've got a very good agent, Grace Hofetz, and I've got a fantastic publisher, Jane Palfreyman at Allen and Owen. And so to have the strength of those people, you know, behind your book is, you know, really, really, I think, made a huge difference. Now, I've talked a little about Scrublands and what it's about, but I was interested to know the genesis of that story before we begin to talk about Silver. So can you tell me what inspired you to write it? Well, part of it was because uh, I realised I couldn't afford, I didn't have the time or the money to do any more non-fiction. Um, I was working in a, in a quite a demanding job once again, as a a journalist, but not writing that much. So Mm. I just thought I'd try and write a fiction story. Um, I always quite liked crime. Um, I was a big admirer, still a big admirer of Peter Temple, the great Australian sort of crime fiction writer. So I thought I'd try my hand at at writing crime. Um, But I think because I didn't have any real expectations about how it might go, I stayed I started, I played around with the form of it a bit, so I didn't want to just write a cookie-cutter type of crime book. So um, there's a couple of aspects in both Scrublands and Silver, although they're, they're different to each other. Both have got quite complex plots. There's four or five plot lines running along at the same time. There's some nuanced characters. There's some interesting settings. And also in both books, something that I didn't really set out to do <clears throat> with Scrublands but just happened along the way is Martin uh, undertakes his own emotional journey. So that the Martin Scarsden at the end of Scrublands is a different man than he was at the start. And I, as the author, found that very satisfying. Um, and I think 
many readers do as well. So as well as the crime story, there's something else happening there. Um, and that's, again, something I tried to um, to do some more of and explore further in silver. Indeed. And I must say, as a, as a reader, I definitely found that to be a very satisfying aspect of both these books. Now, unlike the opening of Silver, Scrublands starts with a prologue, which I absolutely love as a as a literary mm. technique. I guess it's hard not to be reminded of Jane Harper's prologue in the dry um, when I read that. And for me, this book certainly had that same kind of rural noir feeling as the dry, um, both capturing the desperation and desolation of Australia's drought-stricken landscape. So I wanted to ask you, did you always intend to write that kind of story? Um, kind of. I had the setting that <clears throat> the funny thing is that, um, and, and I think you're right about the similarities between the prologues and saying the dry and scrublands. The interesting thing is, though, that I hadn't read the dry. Um, in fact, I wasn't even aware of it by the time I'd sent the manuscript of Scrublands off to an agent. So that it's a it's a sort of strange coincidence in some ways. Although, you know, if I look out my window now and the air is full of smoke from bushfires and my garden is dead because it hasn't rained for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, I live in Canberra, um, then, you know, it's a wonder why more books aren't set in times of drought. It's a bit like, I think, having snow in uh, Scandi Noir. Mm, yeah. um, the, the, um, the funny thing about the prologue in Scrublands, it, I, I think you're right. I think it works really well and gets the reader hooked in very quickly. You know, the scene where the priest shoots the five people. Mm. Um, I didn't actually write that until about uh, the seventh or eighth draft. Up until then, the book was starting with Martin Scarsden, my protagonist, arriving in this sort of husk of a town and the story slowly unfolded. And then at one point I was thinking, oh, I need I need more pace at the start. And I went, oh, I know, I'll, I'll have a... Um, I'll, I'll have a prologue. Um, strangely enough, I think it might have come to me as I was watching a TV adaptation of Game of Thrones, which starts with some guys going off and getting killed by some ice zombies, um, which is a dramatic start. I thought, oh, you know what? I'm talking about this killing. Why don't I just put it up front? The rest of the book, both books really is told very much from Martin's point of view. It's not first person, but he's in every scene. Mm. The exception is the prologue in Scrublands because it happens a year before Martin appears in the town. Um, the other thing about that is when I then went to write Silver, I thought I'm not going to do a prologue. I don't want to just scrub think, oh, I found the formula in Scrublands, so I'm just going to keep repeating the same book. So there's aspects of the books that are similar, but there are some differences. The, you know, there's not, a, there's not the same sort of dramatic prologue in Silver. It's not needed so much because there is actually a body in the first chapter. Mm. Uh, but also there's a few other differences. The first is in Scrublands, Martin arrives, he's an outsider. He comes to this town called Riversend, this drought-stricken town. He's never been there before. He's a total outsider. And the second thing, his motivation is very clear. It's to write a newspaper story. In Silver, it's different. He's not an outsider. This is his old hometown. He hasn't been back there for 20 years. He's reluctant to go back. But um, circumstances are such that he, he needs to go back because his partner, Mandy, has moved there. 
there are people in the town who remember him. He's got relatives there, so he's not an outsider. And he's got past there, and a lot of the, the story is about his past. We're very little in, in, really in Scrublands is about his past. And the other thing is uh, his motivation. His motivation in Silver, for the most part, is he wants to clear his partner Mandy, who stands accused of murder, or at least being you know suspected of murder. Um, and then only later on, as uh, he starts uncovering more and more secrets, does the other the old motivation of of a cracking good newspaper story emerge. So there are differences, and of course the setting is different. The setting from Scrublands comes from my book, uh, The River, where I travelled through the Western Riverina, in fact, the whole Murray-Darling Basin, writing and researching that book, The River, back probably 10 years ago now at the height of the millennial drought. Uh, It's a very dramatic setting. But again, I I didn't want to just go back to that town Riversend and, you know, turn it into the midsummer of Australia sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I needed a new setting with a new dynamic. And so Silver is actually set not in, in in a town undergoing any great financial strain. In fact, it's the opposite. It's just on the cusp of becoming a boom town. And that explains, gives a certain atmosphere to the book, but also explains the motives of a lot of the characters there. The other thing that I found really fascinating about both these books, Chris, was the very tight timeline. Scrublands about a week or so, and, and similarly with, with Silver. Yeah, I, I mean, that's interesting that you mentioned that. I, I guess that's that 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 is a similarity between the two books. It kind of works well. I I, I think I, I'll write some other book in some time. I'll probably stretch over years. It's just <laughs> what it, you know. It's just some of this stuff is you don't necessarily intellectualize it. Mm. You don't make a conscious choice. Uh, as the author, I mean, it's just you know, oh, this is working. I'll go with that. Yeah. So moving on to Silver, as I mentioned, and you've mentioned, Martin is back. For those who haven't read it, could you tell us a little bit more about the story of Silver? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now I don't want to. I don't want to say too much because these are crime novels, so you don't want to do spoilers. But the setup is this, and this isn't really a spoiler because this is the first chapter of the book. At the end of Scrublands, Martin has formed a relationship, really the first proper mature relationship of his life, despite the fact that he's now turned 41, um, with this woman, Mandalay Blonde, who he meets in this town, Riversend, in Scrublands. Uh, she's inherited quite a bit of property and money, and it includes an old house on the cliffs overlooking this town, Port Silver, up on the far north coast of New South Wales. And she's decided that that's the place she wants to live and raise her young son, Liam, and also uh, live there with Martin. Martin is a rather late to, to show up. He, um, he spent some time in Sydney writing a true crime book, the true account of the events that happened in Scrublands, as it so happens. Anyway, he arrives, um, comes to uh, uh, the townhouse that Mandy's renting while she finalises her ownership of this old house. He uh, he walks in and there's his old friend from school days, his best friend from school days, Jasper Spate. Hasn't seen him for more than 20 years. The only trouble is Jasper is dead. He's just been stabbed to death, bled out all over the floor. And just a few metres away, Mandy is sitting there with her hands covered in blood in total shock, um, 
And so inevitably the police suspect her of being the killer. Martin doesn't believe that. Um, well, for the most part, he doesn't believe that. Uh, and so he sets out to try and find who killed his old best mate. So there's a crime story there straight from the start. And as in Scrublands, there are actually multiple crime stories. There's a lot of colourful characters. There's real estate tycoons or wannabes who think there's going to be a big boom, that Port Silver's going to be the next Byron Bay or Noosa. So they're trying to get in the ground floor. There's a there's a moribund fishing fleet. There's a indigenous group making a, a native title claim. There's the old poverty stricken settlement where Martin grew up. There's backpackers. There's itinerant scam merchants. There's a mystery about a death in an old cheese factory. There's a guru who's up at a hippie retreat where there are drug fueled orgies, much to the the delight of the tabloid press. There's a, there's a lot there's a lot going on there. But really, I guess at the heart of the book is Martin and his past. At the tail end of Scrublands, there's a scene where Martin is standing on the old bridge that leads into town. This bridge that runs over a completely empty river, and he sheds a tear. And it says there, you know, it's the first time that he's cried since he was eight years old. So in silver you find out what happened to, to make him cry when he was eight and why he hasn't cried ever since then. The cast of thousands in this book, the multi-layers of this fictional town is quite incredible, which leads me to ask you, despite being a fictional town, was it based on some place that you've experienced <coughs> or, you know, spent time in? No, not really, just bits and pieces of little towns all the way up the east coast of Australia, well, New South Wales and, and Queensland in particular. It was interesting, I, I did a book tour a few weeks ago where I drove from Newcastle up to Brisbane and every town I stopped at, I was saying, it's us, isn't it? It's us. You know, it didn't matter whether Port Macquarie, Coffs Harbour, Ballina, Three Heads, didn't matter. Same thing happened when I went down to Maruya a couple of weeks ago, which is down, you know, well south of Sydney. So, no, it's just little bits taken here and there. Um, the town in Scrublands, Riversend, is a totally fictional town, but the landscape is real. It's way out in western New South Wales on the Hay Plain. So this is kind of similar, although it's a, it's a fictional town, not a fictionalised version of a real town, but, you know, really made up. But, you know, with little, but with familiar elements. I mean, you know, what, what beach town in Australia doesn't have Norfolk Island pines? You know, so exactly. it's, a, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit like that. Yeah. Um, so, so there's, it's a real landscape, though, a real kind of environment, those northern beaches of, of uh, northern New South Wales, although there is a rather steep escarpment, and I think I've more borrowed that maybe from down south, yeah. uh, you know, heading to the yeah, coast of Canberra, or, <laughs> or probably more like around the Illawarra, that yeah. very dramatic escarpment you go down to, you know, like Macquarie Pass and that to get into Wollongong. Well, that's what I thought of um, when I was reading, and I thought, oh, it must be somewhere down on the south coast. <laughs> <laughs> but to hear you say that it's a bit of a mishmash, I mean, I totally get that. Totally understandable. Yeah. So now moving on to, to Martin, I mean, he certainly does have a tendency to get himself embroiled in controversy, doesn't he? Well, one of the things when, you know, back when I was still mucking around and thinking, oh, 
let's play around with the form a bit, more or less for my own entertainment. One of the things I found is you often get protagonists in crime books that are somewhat damaged. That's you know almost a cliche. But the thing is, they remain remarkably astute. They pick up on every smallest clue. You know, they join the dots just remarkably well with flashes of intuition. Well, Martin does that, except he, uh, particularly in Scrublands, just gets things you know, kind of categorically wrong. Mm. And uh, and it feeds into the plot because he's a newspaper reporter. So he writes what he thinks has happened in the newspaper only for subsequent events to come along and show that he's wrong. So I find him an interesting character. Um, he's rather damaged. He's a bit sort of emotionally retarded. Uh He's growing. He's he's not a saint, particularly when it comes to being a newspaper reporter. You know, he's he's willing to sort of bend a few ethical rules there in order to get his scoop. So yeah, I quite um, he's he, I'm finding him quite fascinating. Indeed, it's interesting that you say that about him because I found him to be quite a flawed character in many ways and at times I wanted to shout at him and tell him to stop being such an idiot. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he, he he pushed the envelope a little bit too far at times and often to his personal detriment and balancing on what I thought was often a dubious moral knife's edge. So I wanted to ask, with your journalistic <laughs> experiences, do you think this is a line that many journalists walk? I think it is, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I was very fortunate in my journalistic career and that for, for the most part I worked for organisations that where that wasn't the expectation or wasn't the norm. So I worked for many, many years for SBS and as a public broadcaster it, it probably operates to different standards than some of the commercial media. I worked on, on, on a couple of occasions for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. So so again, and, and not in, in positions where I was expected to, you know, well, I wasn't doing crime reporting or any or celebrity reporting or something like that. Um, but certainly I've witnessed journalists at times do enormously ethically um, questionable things. Uh, just look at the UK tabloids, for example, all those scandals where they are hiring private de- inspectors or detectives or what do you call them, to, to bug celebrities' phones and to hack people's emails and all the rest of it. Um, or the paparazzi, you know, invading people's privacy. So there is a kind of aspect of that in the um, in the books, not just from Martin. Martin, you see it, see it from a more recent, I guess, point of view. But also, there's a, there's a big media contingent that arrives in the two towns in in both books, and yeah, there's partly there for a bit of comic relief, but also they're um, yeah, they get up to a bit of no good. They certainly do. Now, you address many serious themes in these two novels, but police corruption is pervasive in both. Um, was this something you deliberately wanted to address, something that strikes at the heart of organised criminal activity, do you think? Not to any great extent, I must say. It's probably just something that helps drive the plot forward. And I, and in neither book is there any sort of great uh, degree of organised criminal corruption. There, there's sort of a dodgy behaviour by a few police. In Scrublands, in, in fact, that's quite a... It's almost a sympathetic view of that, um, of what maybe could drive people to do things that are illegal or immoral. So I understand that you were selected by Val McDermott to appear on a crime writers panel in Yorkshire earlier this year. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that was fantastic. So there's this big crime 
fiction conference at a place called Harrogate in Yorkshire. And it's held in this one big hotel there called the Old Swan Inn. And the reason why it's held there is that's the hotel that Agatha Christie disappeared to um, back, I don't know, in the 20s or 30s, right at the height of her, her, her fame. She disappeared for 11 days and the newspapers went mad and they thought um, she'd been murdered, that someone was trying to commit the perfect crime um, and others thought that was a publicity stunt. Um, the view now is that uh, she'd found her husband having an affair and just needed to get away and clear her mind. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's it's the most brilliant location for a crime fiction conference. And so you get all these huge writers there, you know, like James Patterson was there, Yo Nesbo was there, Ian Rankin was there, Anne Cleves was there, Helen Caban was there. But the, 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 uh, the panel that I'm on, and there's only one stage, so it, the people sit there and the authors come and go. So there's 750 people that, in the ballroom of this hotel. But Val McDermott reads something like 70 or 80 debut books a year, or at least she starts them, and she selects four to be on this new blood panel. It's a great honour. It's like being shortlisted for an award, really, mm-hmm. because you're sitting in front of 750 you know, rusted on crime readers being endorsed by Val McDermott. And so we're all four, four of us were debut authors. So um, I got to go there and, and um, Scrublands was just coming out in paperback in the UK at that time. This was in July. So I had a little tour around in, um, in Edinburgh. I did an in-conversation with Val McDermott. She was asking me questions, which was a bit intimidating, um, you know, because... The book had been out right for less than a year in Australia, um, and I uh, and in Newcastle, I I was on a two person panel, Anne Cleves and myself, you know, the author of Shetland and Vera and whatever. So I had a most remarkable time over there, and as well as meeting all these wonderful um, uh, writers and reviewers and fans and all that, it also helped the profile of Scrublands, which is a very hard job for you know, the English publishers to promote any debut author, let alone one that lives on the other side of the world. So it was, it, you know, it was a fantastic experience. And is this where that term Antipodean noir came about? Yeah, so what happened there, there's a great crime fiction reviewer called Craig Sisterton who lives in London but is actually a Kiwi and he had a panel at the same event called Antipodean noir and it had two New Zealand writers plus Jane Harper and Christian White from Australia. Um, I wasn't on that panel because no no one gets to have two panels. Um, <laughs> but he's been a great champion in Britain of writers from uh, Australia and New Zealand. And indeed, he's just got a book coming out um, shortly. But it's called what's it called? It's called Southern Cross Crime. So Antipodean Noir is one. You get bush noir, outback noir. Um, the one I like the best, I think, is dingo noir. So there's a, <laughs> they're all got noir one. in them, but, but <laughs> you know, whatever you know. Red earth noir is another one. Yeah, fantastic. What do you think that term and you know even your appearance in that panel had for Australian crime writing? I think it's a cumulative effect that's grown over years. Jane Harper's book, The Dry, was a real breakout book sold fantastically well in Britain 
in the US in translation, a real phenomenon. Mm. And I think what it, that is doing is then people are saying, I like that. What else do you have along similar lines? So there's a number of authors. Candace Fox, who collaborates with James Patterson in the US, as well as writing her own stories. So I think there's been an opening up in the UK, in the US and elsewhere. Partly, I think it's it's maybe a bit of globalisation. Maybe it's the success of um, Scandi Noir that people say in the US realise that a crime book set in a foreign location can make it even more interesting rather than, you know, less accessible. Possibly the advent of Netflix. Um, I think there's a crossover between people sort of binge watching crime shows and actually reading crime books. Mm. So I think it's all added together. And it, and I must say, anytime you, re, you meet an Australian crime writer, or I do, there's a great sense of collegiality and mutual support. Um, partly because I think crime writers generally are, are, are good, fun people. Um, but also I think we realise that if if one of us does well, then readers are more likely to, to continue trying to read Australian books. Um, you walk into any uh, bookstore in Australia, crime fiction is one. It's certainly one of the biggest selling genres, but it's still dominated to a large degree by US and British writers. So there's plenty of room there for for all of us to do well and, and indeed for many more Australian writers to emerge and, and to uh, prosper. So, Chris, what's next? Are you working on something else at the moment? I am working on a third Martin Scarsden. Oh, yes. I learnt my lesson with Silver. So Scrublands was published, you know, in August 2018. Silver was published in October 2019. So the target now is try and have something for... Uh, October 2020, I've only just finished touring and promoting Silver. Um, and books have a very long lead time, as you probably know. It's not like you, you can finish them two weeks before they're published. Mm. In It's more like six months. So, yeah, I'm working away furiously on that now. I'll tell you the name of it, but I haven't come up with one yet. And here I had my pen at the ready. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no scoop today on that one. <laughs> Oh, it's all good. But if you think of a good one, let me know. Oh, well, I'd have to know what it's all about. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Now, Chris, as you probably are aware, I have a lot of aspiring writers who listen to this podcast. So I wanted to know, do you have three top tips that you could offer aspiring or emerging writers? The first is, I think, try and enjoy the process of of writing um so don't get too hung up about it's how it's going to end up in the end or you know whether you get a contract or all that sort of stuff just really get into the moment of writing the book and, and enjoying it the second one i think would be just try and write a really good book a good story told well which kind of i, I mean it, it sounds a bit trite right but what i think a lot of writers do that you know they really want their book to do well so they start trying to write what they think might impress an agent or a publisher. So, you know, writers are trying to write a bestseller. So they think, oh, I better I better spice it up with a bit more, you know, sex and violence or something like that. Um, and it just 
it just comes across as inauthentic and padded. I mean, there's that old saying, you know, you've got to kill your darlings. Well, if you if you if you're deleting scenes that you really love, why would you be putting stuff in that you don't like? Um, and similarly, if your if your aim is more to um, to literary fiction, I think sometimes people go, "Oh, I need to impress publishers. I need to impress the judges on who judge literary awards." You know, just try and write a, a, the best book you can and enjoy it. And of course, every writer's idea of what, what's a good book is different depending on, you know, your own particular taste. Look, it's the book that counts. All the other stuff, you, you, you find a lot of information about if you're an aspiring writer, well, you have to be on 16 different types of social media. You have to be networking. You have to be writing a blog, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of that may help, but all of it is secondary to actually writing a book. So, Chris, if readers wanted to connect with you, where can they find you? Uh, well, <laughs> having, said that. having said all of that, uh, I do have a website that I try and keep relatively up to date, which is called chrishammerauthor.com. I have a Facebook authors page. So on Facebook, you can, you can have just a personal page, which I do have, but that's for really people that I know and you know you see pictures of my family and stuff like that so for the more for people I don't know there's there's an author page which I think is Chris Hammer author on Facebook so if you search for that you can you can follow that and I'm also on uh, Instagram and on Instagram it's more book stuff than anything else a bit of personal stuff and that's I think that's at the hammer now having said (laughs) don't waste your time with all this social media and stuff yeah I've kind of fallen victim to that myself but that's good because you want people to know about your books and you know people love to connect with um, their favorite authors so yeah it's a great way to do so so for me I'm quite happy most of the time just being by myself and and of course now I've got I work with some amazingly professional editors and publishers and that but I know for a lot of a lot of writers having being part of writers groups and you know support networks and that really helps them so maybe that's that hasn't been so much a thing for me but I know for other writers that can be you know can be really helpful. I wanted to congratulate you once more on these two wonderful books I absolutely love them I can't wait to see what you do next and uh, to learn more (laughs) about Martin's (laughs) adventures. Yeah, I can't wait to see what happens next. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Uh, Thanks, Claudine. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tanellis or on my webpage, claudinetanellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.